Hi and welcome to the Oplane podcast where you will find fresh stories of innovation in the commercial aviation industry. But first of all, my usual reminder that you can find all the previous episodes of this podcast as well as many other aviation stories on our website that's oplane.tv a l p l a n e.tv. Well, it's been a while since our last episode. I've slowed down a little bit during the summer months, but here I am ready to bring you a whole new season back with new amazing guests that will bring us fresh insights about some of the most exciting developments that are happening right now in aviation. For the first episode of this new season, I have invited Robin Riedel, a partner at top strategy consulting firm McKinsey. Robin is an aerospace engineer and an A320 commercial pilot by background, but for more than a decade now, he has been leading a career as a consultant at McKinsey based out the firm's San Francisco office, where he leads a disruptive aerospace sector practice. I follow and read pretty much everything that Robin and his team at McKinsey publish on a regular basis, covering some of the key aspects of the advanced air mobility revolution that is unfolding right before our eyes, from the structure of the new aerospace value chain that is emerging, to financial aspects of eVTOL development, and of course, the quest to decarbonize aviation, through cleaner propulsion technologies. So, without further ado, let me welcome Robin to the podcast for a fascinating and insightful talk about the realities and perspectives of innovation in the air mobility industry. Hi, Robin. How are you? Doing well. Thanks so much for having me, Miguel. It's a pleasure. I've been following you for quite some time, uh, always posting very interesting stuff on LinkedIn and also on, on McKinsey's own website. But first of all, let me um, introduce you. You are a partner at McKinsey. Many listeners possibly know it's uh, one of the top, if not the top consulting firm in, in the world. You are in the disruptive aerospace sector group or practice, I don't know how you call it, which is part of the aerospace and defense practice at McKinsey. That's a, a basically a global role, although you are based in, in California, in San Francisco. What else can you tell us about, about your role, about, about your career? Because you started, as a, I think, as an aerospace engineer. You're also a commercial pilot in the past. You've been uh, flying A320s. And now already for a number of years, you've been um, this aerospace practice at McKinsey. So uh, tell us a bit more about yourself. Yeah, I, th I think, uh, first of all, th thank you for having me. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure. Um, look, I think I look at myself really as, uh, you know, as an aviation enthusiast in a professional sense. You know, I'm very much also personal, um, you know, I have a personal life. I'm a, I'm a father and uh, a husband. Uh, but when it comes to work, you know, and, and a lot of my fun time too, quite frankly, has to do with aviation. You know, I grew up in a bit of an aviation family. My, my father was a pilot, my grandfather was a pilot. And so I got to learn aviation early on and I got my pilot's license. I studied aerospace engineering. Uh, you know, I ended up flying larger airplanes uh, at some point, then joined a big airline in different management roles and finally ended up at McKinsey. And I think all of those things kind of connect together with the passion for aviation and having kind of grown up in an industry that, you know, is constantly changing, but yet we haven't really seen the kind of change that we're about to see in the coming years, you know, in decades, if ever. I mean, yeah. what we're about to witness when it comes to, you know, aviation becoming sustainable, you know, finding new modes, it's just very exciting. And, and for someone who lives aviation as an you know, enthusiast, this is a, is a fantastic time. And the role at McKinsey gives me a chance to really see this unfold around the world and across the value chain. And, uh, you know, it's a lot of fun and exciting. Mm -hmm. Indeed, yeah. And, and actually, that's um, what I would like to talk about today, because you are pretty much in the thick of it when it comes to innovation, um, both on the um, sustainability side, which is one of the one of the major areas where we're going to see, I guess, lots of innovation coming through the next few years. But also in when it comes to uh, new business models and new technologies that are expected to disrupt the, the way we, we move around by air. In, in the coming years as well, the flying taxi or flying cars that for many decades was sort of a science fiction thing might be just around the corner. So it's just, uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure that people that are not following this industry closely are, are aware of uh, where we are at, the, at this point in time. <laughs> we were talking now about some of the most advanced projects. We are, they are talking about um, a time horizon of about two, three, four years to, to go operational. So that's, that's really nothing in 
in terms of time. Yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's, it's a unique moment in time for, for air mobility, right? Because a couple of global trends are coming together here that enable what I would call a whole new ecosystem of flying, right? And, and maybe let me describe those trends first. Now, I'll share then what it will look like for those, as you say, most people don't really, can't really imagine what it might be. But I mean, the big trends coming together, you know, uh, one of them is certainly technology. Right? We're now at a point where electrified aviation, so that means using electric motors instead of combustion motors, which gives you the ability to do you know, very different aerodynamic designs, very aer different uh, control mechanisms. Uh, you know, it has, has reached a level where it is actually deployable at passenger carrying aircraft. Right? And so whether that is battery electric or hydrogen fuel cell electric or even hybrid electric, right, all of those technologies are at a point where we can actually make it work. Uh, similarly, AI, by the way, and data usage has come a long way. And so we use a lot of that in terms of flight controllers and how we're going to manage the airspace, et cetera. So technology has gotten to a point over the last couple of years where some of these early dreams of, you know, the Jetsons and, you know, having really much more short range, smaller aviation is, is becoming feasible technically. I think the second big trend is really ride sharing and the willingness of people to think about mobility as a service rather than you know owning your own car or your own bicycle or your own motorcycle you know we're getting more and more into you know sharing and using mobility as a service and you know the big ride hailing companies have done a lot for that but you see this in multiple different areas in mobility and so this really allows us to think about not do i sell a flying car to individuals which might be really expensive but providing a flying car as a service to individuals, uh, which really unlocks that market. So ride hailing and, and mobility as a service is kind of a second big mega trend. Mm -hmm. I think a third one that's really important here is really sustainability. And, you know, sustainability is a, is a big topic in aviation. It's a really important topic. We need to tackle it. Um, and electrification provides a pathway for these new aircraft to really be sustainable from the beginning. And while I probably don't quite see it as a way to, you know, to decarbonize aviation or transportation, because we'll have other ways to do that as well, I do see it as a license to grow. By being sustainable, these new modes will be allowed to actually grow and scale up. So those are some of the big trends that converge. Now you add to that you know, emerging middle classes, you know, urbanization in some countries, deurbanization in others, and you know, just traffic congestion and where, you know, certain cities just don't have any space anymore to add physical infrastructure like roads, right? I mean, think about the cost it would be to add another road or a tunnel or a subway in a city like New York or London or even Beijing. And so as a result, this all comes together and says, look, if we go into the vertical dimension, you know, we can actually make it happen now. It's feasible and it might provide us another way of mobility. Now, let me share what I think this might look like. And of course, there's different different views and there's different incarnations yeah, but yeah uh, if i might say something here um because there are, there are two different sides of this this story i think one of them is the technology side and and that's what's feasible and what's not feasible i think we are when i say we i mean i say uh, industry or society as a as a whole obviously there's a, a whole range of entrepreneurs working on on this type of concept i think um there's around like 200 or 300 ev toll startup projects at the moment in the world in, in different parts of the world working on different concepts and solutions which makes me think maybe that we are at a point that might be something similar to what happened in the early 20th century in the 1920s where you had all these guys creating new aircraft types and new concepts some of them didn't go anywhere but some of them actually did create very durable and, and, and valid concepts so um, yeah, so we had all this technology side and, and then, and that's something that um, you've been writing about is that the business side of it. So how, what's the value chain? We're going to be the operators. Are we going to have the airlines, the OEMs, the airports, all, all the supply, uh, supply chain of spares, maintenance, and also the, the, all the software to manage this, which is also a very important part. So the, we have all these two sides. So. Often we, we hear about the technology side, but I think you, what you guys at McKinsey have been doing, and I think that's very interesting, is try to quantify a little bit. There's this report I'm going to post a link to where you kind of break down what you think is going to be the, the value chain of, of this new future air mobility industry. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. It, it will take a whole ecosystem to make this work, right? And I think we'll start with a lot of focus on the aircraft because that's, you know, a very tangible piece of it. And until you have an aircraft, you really don't have much. And so a lot of the funding is going into aircraft. A lot of the attention is going into aircraft and how do we build them, certify them, design them, and then manufacture them. Uh, but if you think about, you know, traditional aviation, if you think about airlines today, 
only about you know 10% and in many cases less than 10% of your ticket price actually goes to the aircraft, right? Um, the rest goes to things like pilots, fuel or energy, airports, you know, the, the booking platform, travel agencies, right? And so as we think about this future, you know, mobility mode or future air mobility mode, you know, you, it's, it's reasonable to think that, yeah, a large chunk of the value creation, a large chunk of the re revenue will happen not with the aircraft, but in other parts, right? And so I think a number of the eVTOL players recognize that they've started to vertically integrate or they've you know, built business plans where they do more than just building the aircraft. And it could go anywhere from building parts and components all the way down to operating and having a mobility platform um, you know, and running the customer-facing app, including uh, you know, all the different things in between, like maintenance, like ground infrastructure, et cetera. Um, at the same time, you have a number of, of industry players from other industries or from adjacent industries stepping in, right? So you have... Uh, airport operators and airport infrastructure investors who are saying, yeah, we're going to play here and we're going to you know, build vertiport infrastructure for this. You have uh, you know, traditional aerospace component manufacturers who are saying, yeah, we want to build parts here. You got automotive players doing the same thing. Uh, you, know, you got airlines and other aircraft operators, helicopter operators, business jet operators saying, yeah, we want to do the operation of this. And so we're seeing this interesting ecosystem emerge where at the center right now, you still have a big focus on the vehicle, but more and more, the rest of the ecosystem is emerging. Uh, and it's an exciting time to think about where in this ecosystem is really going to be value created and where is it going to be destroyed. And, you know, as you're a company and think about that, you want to make sure you invest in the places where you will make returns uh, and not where you're going to subsidize the rest of the industry. One thing I would like to add is that is the actual transportation of passengers uh, usually gets most of the attention, but there's a whole section of the civilian aviation industry. I'm not even getting into the military side of, of aerospace, but in the civilian aviation industry, there are a whole lot of uses for aviation that are not typical, let's say, airline moving from, let's say, from New York to, to Washington or something like that. It's, it's things like training, uh, general aviation, cargo, agriculture applications, surveying applications, uh, aerial survey. But the part of the aviation that uh, covers uh, distances of up to 500 miles, you quantify that, I think, at 17% of total emissions. That could be completely electrified pretty much with the technology we have now without having to wait for big breakthroughs in, in battery technology, stuff like that. So that's already quite a significant part. So we're talking almost a quarter, almost a fifth of the aviation emissions. What else do you see happening here? I mean, do you see this electrification as inevitable? How do you see all the different approaches to uh, decarbonizing aviation working all together? Airbus made a big, this big push for hydrogen, but we are seeing lots of activity in sustainable aviation fuel, and it seems it might be a more pragmatic approach. I don't know. How do you see all this race to decarbonize? Yeah, look, I think it's, it's, uh, it's an exciting and important discussion, partially because uh, you know, we need to decarbonize, but also because there's so much uncertainty in this. And as you say, there's trade-off between the different solutions. And so my view is that all of the solutions you mentioned, right, whether it's electrification, whether it's hydrogen, um, you know, combustion, or whether it's, it's sustainable aviation fuels, will have to play a role. So let's unpack a little bit why, why I say that. Right? I think on the one hand, to decarbonize soon and quickly, you know, sustainable aviation fuel is the most pragmatic and, you know, near-term solution. And the other thing that it is, it's a drop-in solution, meaning we can literally keep the same technology today, the same aircraft and the same ground infrastructure and, you know, use them with that. And that is a big, important uh, point because, you know, the aircraft we build today, you know, once they get delivered, they're expected to last 30 years. And financially, you know, you, you calculate them to last 30 years or so. And so every 737 MAX and every you know, A320 uh, NEO that's rolling out of a factory today is expected to last till 2030-ish. And so that means if we want to decarbonize by 2030, we either have to find a way to use that technology or we have to retire it early. And if we were to retire all these aircraft early and try to replace them with other technology, we're talking about trillions of dollars in early write-offs of assets, which from an economic sense, uh, you know, just doesn't work for an industry. And so I think sustainable aviation fuel is really the way to decarbonize some of that. It also, you know, works with long-range aircraft and large aircraft where some of the novel propulsion technologies are a little bit harder to, to have, you know, make happen at this point. So sustainable aviation fuel is a big, important part of, of the parts of decarbonization. Now, it does have a few challenges, right? I think there's a challenge around, you know, you're still burning, um, you know, 
fuel at high altitude. And so some of the effects that are not just carbon, but that are, you know, other, other emissions coming out of the aircraft, you know, contrail formation, all of that is still happening uh, with sustainable aviation fuels to a lesser degree in some cases because the fuel is a little bit cleaner and burns cleaner. But fundamentally, you still have some of those other climate impact effects. And so, you know, it's not the perfect solution. Uh, and that's why it's important we keep working on some of these other solutions. And so two I would mention in particular, one is electrification, which really means using electricity to drive, you know, the propulsor. And, it, you know, the power source could be batteries or it could actually be hydrogen fuel cells. Uh, but that is a technology that will allow us to build very different type of aircraft because now we can put the propellers or the, you know, the propulsors all over the airplane because electric aviation, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't need large scale. It doesn't need large engines to be efficient. And so that allows us to build different types of aircraft, which are more efficient. I think battery technology and hydrogen fuel cell technology is advancing. And, you know, I have no doubt that, you know, by the end of this decade, early next decade, we will have regional aircraft that are powered electrically. And that'll scale up over time. And, you know, I applaud many of the entrepreneurs who are out there trying to do this and some of the OEMs trying to do that. So electrification to me is going to be a big part. And as you mentioned, for a lot of the short range flights today, so about 17% or so of the emissions come from that. And for all of the emerging new aviation on the low end, so regional, advanced regional aviation or urban air mobility, advanced air mobility, all of that, you know, electricity can help us make that decarbonize. Yeah, actually, and then just to mention the last one. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, no, I just wanted to mention here is um, about the, all this short haul flying that we we are seeing actually lot on one side lots of pressure of about um, uh, basically uh, abolishing the the short haul short haul flying like carbon emitting short haul flying. But um, then we we might find that in like in five. Well, maybe five is a bit optimistic, but in 10 years' time, if actually we are flying a lot more in the, in the short haul because of all these, all these changes, I, I don't know whether the public debate has moved that far. I mean, because I think in, in Germany, uh, for example, I saw a statistic saying that like, like half of Germans want to uh, ban short haul flights in, in the short term and all that. But I don't know if, how prepare the public opinion is for all this amount of short haul flying and all the new use cases. So having planes landing closer to their homes, going to places where you would never think about flying today, but maybe it will be feasible in the future. So I'm, I'm just concerned that it might be feasible technologically, but you would still have lots of um, concerns at societal level that make all this change slower than it should be. Oh, for, for, for sure. And I'm, I wouldn't even say as it should be, because I would say these are valid concerns. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, as an industry, we need to bring the sure. public along. So, so I go back to say the table stakes here, what, what has to be, you know, non-negotiable is that this needs to be sustainable, right? So I think these short hole, you know, new aerial modes need to be, you know, at the very least carbon neutral, mm -hmm. right? But, but even better, you know, end to end, you know, circular, um, and so I think that is just a license to, to operate and grow. Without that, we're not, not going to go there. Now, beyond the sustainable part from an environmental perspective, you also have noise, you have visual pollution, right? And so those things we need to address as well. And I'm very encouraged by many of the eVTOL designs that are actually really quiet. I just had a chance to go to one of the operators and see an aircraft and, and actually hear it. And it sounds like a, you know, it really hums like a, like an air conditioning unit, you know, in the background. Um, it does not sound anything like a helicopter today or a jet aircraft today. So I'm very excited about the opportunity there to really bring down the noise pollution. Um, visual pollution, visual pollution is another topic I think we'll, we'll need to address. And then lastly, of course, safety. I yeah. think aviation obviously has been one of the safest travel modes or, or mobility modes, um, you know, over the last years. And we need to make sure that all these new things that come in, you know, EV tolls and drones, yeah. et cetera, keep that standard and keep high to that standard. Because one interesting change is happening here. You know, with traditional aviation, we were really mostly concerned about the people on board the aircraft because you usually flew high. You had very few incidents where the aircraft crashed on the ground and, you know, really did a lot of collateral damage on the ground. And so the focus was on the aircraft. Now, when you fly smaller aircraft, but closer to the ground, closer to people in urban centers, all of a sudden you really need to think differently about this and say it's not just the people on the airplane, it's also the people on the ground because the aircraft might not have a lot of time to get out of the way, you know, to steer away from the city. You know, the, the aircraft might, um, you know, really cause some, some damage in the, 
in the populated areas if there was a safety issue. And so as a result, we need to think about that as well as we're developing this industry. So yeah, absolutely. Safety and, you know, environmental noise um, and, and visual is, they're topics we just need to address head on. And we need to make sure that we really bring society along and the communities, right? And I'm, again, I'm encouraged by what I'm seeing because there's enough initiatives out there uh, really trying to do that and really being thoughtful about how do we build something that is additive to society at large and not just, you know, a toy for the rich that, yeah. uh, you know, has externalities on everybody else. Yeah, just to, to provide some numbers for the audience, um, actually, I'm quoting one of your papers on McKinsey's website. You mentioned that there are, I think, in the world as a whole, around 3,000 commercial airports, but the number of regional airports, underused regional airports or airfields that could be used by new air mobility vehicles, then we jump to 36,000, so that's more than 10 times more, uh, just to give an idea of the scale of yeah. what we're talking about. The air activity would multiply. The, the activity would multiply, for sure. And I think that is the, the part where we need to make sure it doesn't create a lot yeah. of externalities. Yeah. But also the convenience and the accessibility would multiply. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. if you think about, you know, most people today, going to the airport is, is a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a journey, right? It's not, mm -hmm. you know, right next door. It's not something you quickly do. And then the airports are massive and it takes a lot of time to get through them. And if we want to do short-haul flying, and want to really provide a benefit to people. It has to be close to you, accessible. It has to be a simple process. And so much of this, you know, call it underused infrastructure, right? And in the U.S., of course, we have a, we have a ton of it. Uh, and then other countries do too, you know, can be used um, to, to really build a network and make this easy. And there's a number of players starting to do that. There is small regional airlines popping up in places that are, you know, flying from these shorter airports, the smaller airports on shorter routes that are, you know, you have no long security lines. You don't have, you know, a half hour walk from the parking garage to the terminal, right? Mm -hmm. Things are smaller, easier to use, and customers love it. And they find it accessible and, uh, you know, are, are flocking to those models. And so now if we could combine that with an electric aircraft or a green aircraft at lower cost, um, you know, that seems like it could really take off and really provide the benefit to society um, and to the travelers in, in general. Yeah, no, that's one, one of the things that gets me interested um, in, in what's going on is actually how this is going to connect with the overall transport ecosystem and also about the capacity because most of these things are pretty small so we're talking normally of up to 19 seats the largest but some of the some of these concepts are carry like two three four people so if if they are to take um, if they are to make a significant dent on other types of transportation you would need lots and lots of them and even then, the, the amount of people in absolute numbers possibly is not that big. So I'm just thinking here about things like traffic, air traffic control. So the, I guess that falls between the, what you mentioned earlier, the new ecosystem, the new supply chain. I mean, there has to be a lot of innovation going into optimizing these type of things, I guess. Not just the hardware, but also the, all, the, all the connectivity and all like to make all of this smooth. Absolutely. No, no doubt. Right. And I think yeah. there's a lot of challenges we need to overcome as an industry. This is not like a slam dunk in itself. I think we'll mm -hmm. spend a lot of money and a lot of time, and a lot of brain power and mind share to really unlock all these different things. And that's why, you know, Bill Gates, I think, once said, you know, we, we overestimate what we can do in two years, but underestimate what we can do in 10 years. And I think the same will apply here. I think right now there's a lot of hype around, uh, especially EV toll and kind of the shorter range. And you know, certainly I hope we're going to get there by 2024, 2025, but I wouldn't be surprised if it takes us a few years longer, just because some of these things you just mentioned just will take some time to crystallize, at least before we can get to scale. But then if I look 10 years into the future, I don't see any reason why we wouldn't be able to solve those problems, right? Yeah. Um, in many cases, we're not talking about science or physics here, we're talking about engineering, right? As we, we know the answer, we just need to actually build it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think in those cases, you know, time and will help. And I'm encouraged by the number of, you know, the amount of funding that has gone in this industry, right? We're, we've seen over $10 billion um, publicly announced funding in this industry. You know, there is another probably $5 billion or so by strategic players who have not announced, you know, big OEMs that do this in-house, et cetera. And so, you know, that is a meaningful amount of money that can help us solve some of these, uh, these challenges and actually build an industry. And is everybody going to be successful? No, absolutely not. There will be some people along the way who will struggle and, and maybe go away. 
but I certainly think that uh, some people will make it and will have you know, a sort of ecosystem 10 years from now that'll, that'll bring us a different form of mobility. Yeah, you touched a very important, uh, very important point is all the, the finance. Um, we have seen a very prominent um, stack listings uh, in, in the, this year. Um, seems to be a, like a boom of um, stacks. Um, but it, it's not clear to me where all this capital to, to make this possible is going to come from. Is this money you mentioned, I think, 10 billion? Is this coming mainly from inside the industry? Is it coming from institutional investors? Have you guys uh, looked into the, to what's the structure of this capital coming in yeah. and make any, any forecasting about where is this yeah, coming I from? Mean, so look, at a big chunk of the capital um, historically, until call it 18 months or so ago, uh, was really coming from strategic investors, right? And so uh, those were, you know, some of the big OEMs, both on the automotive side or on the, on the aerospace side, who's kind of, you know, invested in this as part of their ongoing R&D, right? And so there's a couple of billion dollars that flew that way. Um, I think then we saw venture capital stepping in and we saw, you know, early venture capital funding uh, in, in some of these plays. So, so then in the last 18 months, I think we've seen two new you know, sources of funding emerge. I think one is, as you said, the spec uh, money, so the, the special purpose acquisition companies, which are blank check companies that can merge with some of these startups to create new publicly traded companies. So it's just a different way to go to the public markets. And in the process, you know, the money that's in the spec becomes, you know, be added to the balance sheet, but also money from a private investment that happens at the same time called the pipe. And so we've seen a number of deals uh, coming through that way. And some of them have closed. Others are in the process of being closed. Depending on how hot the market is, there's uh, you know, a certain amount of, of money that gets pulled out before the deal closes, et cetera. Uh, so the money is not completely certain, but it is flowing in. And this is allowing these companies to you know, get the hundreds of millions or close to billions of dollars that you need to really bring an aircraft to market and build up the, uh, you know, the manufacturing of it and the servicing of it. And so that has been an important source of funding. And, you know, we've seen some deals close and some others will soon. And, you know, that suggests that, uh, you know, the money will be there to develop that. And then last but not least, I think we've really seen an influx, in particular on the sustainable aviation side, of, you know, call it environmentally focused funding, right? And so we see a number of the big funds out there, you know, raising ESG-focused funds or raising, you know, environmentally focused funds. We see a number of the venture firms that are focusing on, on clean tech uh, starting to invest in this space. And so that's really giving a boost to some of the more traditional aircraft configurations that are, you know, becoming green with novel propulsion, right? And so that, that to me is an important uh, signal. Now, we still need a lot more money, there's no doubt, right? Especially if we're talking about building, you know, regional aircraft and, um, you know, narrow body type aircraft um, that have capabilities to fly, you know, a couple hundred or thousand miles uh, with, you know, 50, 100 passengers, you know, that'll take additional funds, no, no doubt. Uh, but I am very encouraged by looking in the investment landscape today and see how much dry powder there is to really focus on solutions that will greenify the world. Mm -hmm. And so um, I'm hopeful that we'll see the funding come in and I'm hopeful that we'll see these solutions come to life. I'm just wondering at, what, at which point, when are we going to reach this kind of tipping point where the operators, like let's say airlines and, and other companies that, that manage the infrastructure, infrastructure would, would need to make the decision whether to, to go with a completely, like let's say new generation equipment or just uh, stretching uh, the current. You will have a role here advising people <laughs> what's the optimal strategy to follow. It's, it's true, but look, this is a, a perfect example of, you know, strategy under uncertainty, yeah. right? Yeah. Because there's a couple of metrics here, you know, figures of merit that, you know, we just don't know how they're going to develop, right? Mm -hmm. Is battery density going to increase by 7% a year? Or are we going to see a step change or are we going to plateau? We, we really don't know, right? Are hydrogen fuel cells going to increase their efficiency uh, in the next 10 years? We, we just don't know, right? Are sustainable aviation fuels, are we able to really make power to liquid, so you know, synthetic fuels from you know, combining hydrogen and carbon, are we gonna be able to make that technology work at scale at the price point that people are, it's unknown, right? And so given that there's so much uncertainty into which solution is really gonna play out at what price point and technology, are they even possible? You know, I think we need a portfolio approach as a world, right? We need to you know, invest in a number of these things and have them compete and really try to drive out the optimum solution 
by investing in a number of solutions and see how they really pan out. And, mm -hmm. you know, yes, depending on what you believe about technology, about economics, about what policymakers will be doing, you know, you can pick one or two or a different set of portfolios, you know, portfolio companies to, to, to you know, place your bets in. But fundamentally, I think as society, we just don't know what is the one answer. And that's why it's important we, you know, really look at all these options and we really fund uh, you know, multiple of these options, not just sustainable aviation fuels or not just electrification, but the range of that. Yeah, one thing you've done though is, at McKinsey, is you try to quantify the, break down the value chain in different categories and see what's the magnitude of each of, the, of those. I, I would like to briefly touch upon, the, uh, upon this topic because that's, that's quite interesting. Um, and actually, I'm gonna post a link to this report when there's a graph, but Actually, when you look at the estimation of uh, value chain breakdown for future mobility, what I see is that the actual hardware, it's a relatively small part. You allocate a lot of weight, well, weight in a metaphorical way, not, not in, in terms of metal, but uh, uh, in terms of uh, the value um, to things like the pilots, for example, uh, which is explained by, by the fact that some of these new concepts have carry relatively less people per aircraft than conventional airliners. Also infrastructure and mobility services. Mobility services are all these, these platforms, for example, as you mentioned, Uber-like uh, technology to, to book rides and stuff like that. Can you explain me a little bit more in detail how, how you guys did these calculations? What are the assumptions? Yeah, ha ha happy to. And look, as we say in the paper, right, this is one way of how the industry could play out. Right? There's other scenarios of how it could play out, but we use this as an example or one of the more likely potential outcomes. And so let me, let me cover a few things that you talked about. I think one, the vehicle is a relatively small share. I think we say the vehicle manufacturer is only you know, around 5% uh, of the overall value. Now, you add to that the components, which is probably another 5 to 10, the battery, which is another 5-ish or so, and then you know, the financing of all of that and the infrastructure, you, you get more to it, about 25% or so, uh, of the you know value of of what you as a customer pay goes towards the vehicle, right? And uh, I think one, that is one question here. Sure. Do you do you see the the hardware part becoming more of a commodity in the long term? I do care, but for most people, they they don't care if it's a Boeing seven three seven or an A three twenty. The <laughs> I, I guess like many industry people now, <laughs> they're gonna scream at me. But it's fair to say that for ninety percent of passengers, they don't care that much about what's the make of the aircraft, as long as it's between certain parameters. Um, do you see this happening here as well? So you're going to care about, or is it going to be more like cars where people, like if you're driving a BMW or you're driving, a, I don't know, a Ford, it's a bit different. Maybe if you drive yourself, right? But if you look at ride sharing, I couldn't tell you what were the last five car types that I was in in ride sharing, right? Um, because when you're not driving yourself and when you don't own the vehicle, I think many of us, you know, don't spend as much attention to what is the, the OEM. And so I'm not sure if I would use the word commoditized per se, because I think this is still high tech equipment, True. right? But I do think we're going to end up in a world that looks more like cars today with, you know, a number of players building these vehicles, um, yeah. in very similar than in an aviation environment where we have, you know, only a handful of players who really build large aircraft, mm -hmm. right? And so I think it, it'll be more like it is in cars today. And people will differentiate themselves by having different features, by building different brands, by going from upscale where it's a low scale. But fundamentally, I do think, um, you know, many of the travelers will probably not be able to tell the difference between the manufacturers that they're in. Now, when it comes to operators, they might, right? Because I could tell you what was the ride hailing company uh, that I used for my last ride, you know, ride hailing rides. I just wouldn't yeah. be able to tell you what the aircraft, what the what the car type was, right? So yeah. I think that's why the mobility services. So the part of how do you book, how do you engage with it, you know, sees quite some value in our breakdown here because yeah. that is yeah. where you know the customer in the end of the day engages, right? And, and that's where the payment yeah. follows through. And the airline, obviously, people know which airline they are flying. Most people do at least. More so than which airplane type. Yes, yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, so yeah, that's a good, I think that's a good good comparison. Um, then there's the pilot part, but um, that, does this calculation uh, take into account uh, potential automation of, of part of these uh, fleets? 
or that's too far into the future yet to be so able to quantify. Yeah, in this scenario, we did not uh, consider autonomy because most of the Evito players today are suggesting they're going to start with piloted vehicles, right? There's a few that are going autonomous first, but they're not looking to start, um, you know, in the next couple of years. And the reason really is, is that you're, you're breaking so much new ground with these vehicles when it comes to propulsion, when it comes to infrastructure, you know, adding autonomy to that just creates an additional hurdle to really overcome when it comes to regulation and others. And I think people recognize that that is probably one step um, too far if you want to accelerate the time to market. And so we believe you're going to have pilots on board of these aircraft in the beginning. And because these aircraft are relatively small, you know, one, two, three, maybe five passengers, uh, you know, the, the relative share or the ratio of pilots to passengers is, is going to be, uh, you know, relatively high for the pilot. And initially, these were going to be certified commercially airline pilots, right, or at least commercial pilots. And, you know, you go through a rigorous training for that. And, um, you know, that creates certain costs that will be reflected. Now, we do have a, some work on how do we think this is going to play out? Because there's a couple of challenges in this. I think one challenge is finding enough pilots, right? We have a pilot shortage already in commercial aviation uh, on, on the horizon looming. And, you know, we probably need another, you know, 30 to 60,000 pilots or so for advanced air mobility by the end of the decade. Um, and we've written about that in a white paper. And so getting the pilots is one thing. I think the other thing is how do you uh, really get them interested in this role, right? There's a few things that get me excited, right? Like you're going to be home every night. Great. This is much better than in traditional airlines. And, you know, that will attract a whole new kind of, uh, of audience to this or a whole new kind of segment of, of people to this, to this role. But on the other hand, you're telling people, look, we want you to be a pilot, but in the background, we're working on automating these vehicles and getting rid of you because you're too expensive. Yeah. And so it's not something where, you know, you could see people say this is a long-term career choice in itself. And so there's a number of challenges to overcome. And some of the Evito players have now started partnerships with flight training companies. They're actually starting their pipeline of pilots to build them up. Uh, to really cover those problems. But yeah, pilots is going to be a very important topic in the, in the initial years of this. Are, are you um, expecting also other roles here, um, specialized roles that would need to be filled, uh, not just the pilots, but in connection to this? Obviously, one of them would be all the technical servicing. So you would need to train all these 60,000 pilots, but also all the, all the people uh, doing all the maintenance, all of that. Um, I'm, I'm not sure how is the industry going to handle this, uh, whether there are already, I'm, I haven't been really following this specific segment but of the industry, but are there already some initiatives to, to train people in these roles? Is it the OEMs that are uh, preparing for this? What are your insights here? Yeah, no, ab absolutely. So the ecosystem as it's building is thinking about these things. And in terms of important roles other than pilots, right, we'll have to have maintenance staff that actually maintains these aircraft. We're going to have... Uh, you know, manufacturing staff, so engineers that built these aircraft. We're going to have ground handlers that, you know, manage the passengers and the aircraft on the ground. And all of those things are related, but slightly different to what we do in automotive and aerospace today, right? So for example, the vehicles are going to be much simpler. Uh, you know, there's going to be a few thousand parts, not tens or hundreds of thousands of parts in a vehicle like that. Um, at the same time, it's going to be fully electrified, which is completely different than what airplanes are today. Right. And yep. so dealing with high power electronics, dealing with chargers, the heat generation in that, uh, you know, managing batteries, when to replace them, how to replace them. There's a whole bunch of training that needs to go into the technical side and the aircraft handling side of that. And so we see a number of the Vito players starting up their own training programs. I was actually visiting one this week, which, uh, you know, already has ground crews. You know, they have crew chiefs with ground crew to already practice how they're going to turn around the aircraft on a daily basis. How do they service it? How do they clean it? How do they wash the windows? How do they change the batteries? So they're very much in the process of learning how to do that and codifying that. And then, you know, there's universities, you know, vocational schools, you know, training providers that are really thinking about this and getting uh, excited about this new market, how it's starting up and starting to really invest into this. Now, if you were to step up and say, hey, I want to become an Evito mechanic, can I get that training today? Probably not quite yet, simply because there's no Evitos yet. Um, you know, but give it another two years and, you know, that will absolutely be there. Uh, one question uh, in relation to this is, uh, well, I'm not an engineer, so I'm uh, not too familiar with the, all the different parts and components that go into these EV tolls. Are they usually uh, parts and spares that are not, well, 
I was about to say universal, not universal, but that have other uses already in the, let's say, in existing applications, or how much of, how much of the machinery is custom made for eVTOL, and how much of it is actually things that already exist because it, they had other uses prior to the eVTOL revolution? Yeah, look, I think most parts, you know, have some kind of other use as well and are adoptions but they're still customized towards this application, right? I think there's a few things. So examples of that would be avionics, right? Most of the eVTOL players have announced that they're gonna use pretty off the shelf avionics from current avionics manufacturers, right? Uh, things like seats, things like flight controllers, you know, many of these things are either light adoptions or, you know, just straight out of, of existing uh, technology. Now, there are certain things, especially around the propulsion system, right? So whether it's the motors or whether it's the, uh, the battery packs or the hydrogen fuel cells, um, which, which really are custom made for this application, right? Because aviation has some very unique requirements, right? You need to be lightweight. Uh, you need to be very fire you know, suppressing. Um, and so, you know, getting the combination right. And, and of course, by the way, high power and high energy density, yeah. both power and energy density and high cycle life, um, you know, for economic yeah. reasons. So there's some unique unique requirements that drive those things to be much more custom made. And that's a um, secret source of uh, that's a secret source that uh, some of these yeah. manufacturers are are actually uh, betting on, right? Uh, absolutely. I think the propulsion system is going to be the dif big differentiator here, and and mm -hmm. also a place where you know real value is going to be created in the value chain. Mm -hmm. uh, also, another another interesting um, aspect that maybe is a bit too early to 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 mention now, but uh, uh, give it 10 years and it's going to be important is the residual value. I think there was a paper, I saw a paper, I don't know if it was yours or from some other source, I read it a few days ago that was talking about estimation of, of the second-hand market and residual value of, of these vehicles like in, in a few years time. I'm going to uh, look for it and post it as well in the notes. Um, right now, obviously, aircraft and helicopters have a, a well-established um, aftermarket. It helps that most of these aircraft have a very long operative life, uh, so have long life cycles. But if we were to go like at the beginning of aviation, as I, we said earlier, 1920s, 1930s, most of these aircraft became obsolete very quickly. And it might happen again here. Uh, so you would have aircraft that become obsolete in three, five years, rather than the 20, 25 years or 30 years that you're seeing now in the industry. That's also interesting, uh, has interesting implications for the, particularly for finance, I guess. Uh, I, I, absolutely. I, I think, you know, aviation today, you know, it's very much uh, asset-backed financing, right? So we understand how airplanes are going to, yeah. you know, maintain their residual value. Banks are happy to, to lend against aircraft. We, you know, see leasing companies because it's a well understood, uh, you know, market. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's based on understanding of residual values based on, on history. And I think the problem with eVTOL here is that these vehicles likely have a much um, faster product cycle life, right? In terms of when is the next generation going to come out? Like technology is going to march pretty fast. And so we're not going to see 30 year long lifetimes of aircraft, I don't think. Right, but something much shorter. Um, and so the question is really, okay, how do you get an industry that is used to lending against aircraft that last 30 years and that there are hundreds of millions of dollars or at least tens of millions of dollars to think about an industry that, you know, has a vehicle that only lasts, you know, a handful of years, but is also only a handful of million of dollars in initial cost and, you know, might not have these multiple afterlives that current aircraft have. And I think my worry for the industry is a little bit that if, we don't get our head around this soon. We're going to fall short of financing in the first years because, you know, players might step back and say, wait a minute, you know, I don't really know how these assets are going to move. My accounting, my risk processes, et cetera, cannot really handle something where I have no good clue of what the residual value will be. And so I will wait a few years before entering this market, you know, let the first couple of years pass till we see how it goes and then I'll enter. And if that happens, we might see a, a crunch to, uh, not have enough cash to really purchase those aircraft to start operations. Now, some leasing companies have started to lean forward and have made announcements about purchases and are actively engaged. But I think overall, this remains a big challenge for the industry. Or OEMs becoming operators themselves. I mean, uh, we have seen in, I think, Lilium in, in Germany. And I spoke with um, Faradair, for example, in, in the UK, uh, where they had uh, mentioned plans to actually become a, more of a, 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 an operator of their own equipment. 
For sure, but the challenge remains, even if you're an yeah. operator of your yeah. own equipment, yeah, you, need to you still need yeah. funding to, yeah, to yeah, finance yeah. these planes. And I think uh, the, the deals we see right now for funding, you know, they get these players to build the aircraft, to build the manufacturing of the aircraft, but they don't really, you know, have enough cash within that current funding to mm -hmm. buy it. I mean, look, most of these aircraft are, let's say, around somewhere between three and five million dollars. Yeah. And yeah. the players want to produce a couple of hundred a year. Right. So that's an additional billion dollars or so per year, um, you know, that is needed in funding, which, again, current financing doesn't doesn't include. And so I think it's going to be interesting to see how uh, how the industry will resolve that. And my hope is that, you know, the banks and the financing uh, organizations will get their head around that and, uh, you know, recognize the opportunity, but also find a way to assess the risk and uh, you know, provide financing. Mm -hmm, definitely. Before wrapping up, there's another segment uh, where interesting things are happening that I, I would like to touch upon, and that's uh, supersonic and hypersonic flight. Um, there's some innovation taking place there. We have seen a couple of projects that folded recently, uh, so that's definitely a very challenging segment, but one that, well, it, it's not entirely new because it existed in the past, not very profitable at the time, but uh, there are some entrepreneurs that are making inroads. So what, what's your view on supersonic and hypersonic flight and how it fits with uh, all this drive towards sustainability? Because it's got a bit of an image problem, I think, when it comes to uh, <laughs> uh, flying faster. I, I know there's all the sustainable fuel use and all that, but there's still something there that not just technology, but also the perception of uh, supersonic flight, I guess, it, it's going to find some barriers. I, I think you sum it up well, right? I think, as I said earlier, I think sustainability is going to be the, the license to grow and the license to operate. And so unless you can be sustainable, I think it will be very hard for supersonic to, to take off. Mm -hmm. And sustainable aviation fuel will do a part to that. But you still have the challenge that you're burning fuels at a very high altitude with these aircraft, which has all kinds of, of non-carbon effects that need to be considered. So I'm, I'm cautious about that. I do also think that the problem with supersonic is, is that the market itself, um, you know, obviously we all would love to fly faster and travel faster. Um, but, you know, how many markets really lent themselves towards doing that? Right. I mean, yes, across the Atlantic in one direction. Fantastic. But there's lots of flights where I say today, listen, you know, if I arrived an hour or two earlier, it would be in the middle of the night. I'd rather sleep the two hours more on the plane. Uh, where I personally would go, yeah, maybe maybe I don't quite need to pay a premium for supersonic or go faster. And so, you know, I haven't haven't seen, you know, I've seen both sides of the of the argument, of course, but I haven't seen any compelling and, and you know, really definitive, uh, definitive work that would suggest that, you know, this is absolutely going to happen because the benefits are just so good and we can overcome the environmental challenges, right? Mm -hmm. Nor have I seen the absolute case that, hey, this cannot work because of X, Y, Z. So I think it's going to be interesting how it plays out. The reality is it will still require billions of dollars in funding to make it happen. And, um, you know, we'll see if, if investors find this exciting enough to invest in it. I don't know if you guys have looked into um, the linkages between what we're seeing now in space travel and potential applications for actually for travel on Earth. So things like hypersonics or like ultra fast in, intercontinental travel, like things like going from let's say from from Europe to Australia, from the from the US to 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 China, going suborbital, this type of things that sound a bit like science fiction, but I, I know some, there, there are some startups out there looking into this. And obviously there's also like all the space entrepreneurs also lowering costs of uh, sending things to orbit and all that. I, I don't know if you guys have looked into this. Uh, have you done any calculations of whether this is feasible at some point in the future? Yeah, I, I would say, look, it, it very much looks like it will be feasible. Um, the question really is, is it economically feasible? And, you know, does it really make sense for us to go that direction as, as a society, um, you know, for call it broader at scale transportation, right? Because you are, uh, you know, dealing with a very different technology, which might come at a very different price point. And so I think in the next 10 years, we're not going to see that afterwards, to be honest, who can predict the future, right? True. I personally would be excited about it, but there's a number of of issues, uh, you know, or challenges still to be overcome. But look, I'm, I'm very excited that there is players out there that are looking at that and, you know, making the case for it. And, uh, you know, 
what we will learn as they kind of build these bin shares, you know, might tell us that, yeah, look, this is, this is the way we want to travel in the future. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think we can leave it here for, for today with all these, these many questions that I'm, I'm sure are going to keep you, the consultants, busy for quite a lot of time because there's lots of strategic choices here that operators will need to make in the coming years about many, many different aspects, uh, financial, operational, business models, marketing, lots of stuff, lots of interesting things going on. Um, for sure. And, yeah. and look, I think, again, as an aviation enthusiast and someone who loves this industry, I think it's a unique time. It's, a, it's an exciting time. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad I get to live in it. For people that want to follow your thoughts on this, what's the best way to, to find your, your writings, your, your thinking on McKinsey website? There's quite a lot of stuff that you're publishing regularly. Any other platforms or channels you would recommend? Yeah, look, I mean, following me on LinkedIn is one way to just see what, what's on my mind. And, you know, we publish our own research that way. We also talk about other research we read that we find interesting. Uh, and so that is one, one good pathway to, to see what we're thinking about. And then, of course, McKinsey.com, we have a future air mobility blog where we publish every couple of weeks our thoughts. So that's a good way to kind of keep in touch. And then uh, also our white papers that we publish. And so, um, yeah, look, I think uh, also if people are interested in having a deeper conversation on some of these topics, feel free to reach out to me directly. Probably LinkedIn is the best path to do so. Excellent. So I'm going to post links to all of these resources. Um, that I'm sure are going to be interesting for, for many of those listening to us. Thank you so much for your time today. And definitely go check these uh, reports and white papers because they, they have very, very interesting thoughts, including all this breakdown of value chains that I found particularly interesting. Thank you very much, Robin, for your time today. Thank you, and thank you for having me. A pleasure. Before you go, and if you like this podcast, a quick reminder that it would be absolutely great if you could please give it a rating on Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you are using, or recommend it to a friend or whomever might be interested. Thank you very much, and see you soon.